curious as to how one gets into musicology. And I presume that it happens because you have an in-depth love of music. Tell me how you got into it. I got into it through, well, it was a circuitous path through school. So um, coming out of high school, I went on the road first with a country band and then with a classic rock band touring around Ontario. And I quit high school with one credit left to do. My parents' heads must have been exploding. <laughs> one credit. Okay. Yeah, so I, I was like, I'm going on the road. I'm going to be a musician. And so I, I went on the road and I caught just the last moment of the six-nighter circuit in Ontario. Right, which so what was, year would you, this be? This was... 87, 88, 89. Okay. And uh, so that was the last time that that you had these bars. They were often hotels right. all over Ontario in places like Kirkland Lake, Hearst, Kapuskasing, Timmins. And you would either stay in, a, in, in the hotel or you'd stay in a band house and you'd play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night from nine to one. And you'd play a matinee on Saturdays right. as well. And you'd drive on Sundays and you'd go to the next town. And so I did this uh, for two and a half, three years. And I was a, you know, I was like 18, 19 years old. And you're thinking, this is what I want to do. I was thinking that. <laughs> and, then, and this was the, the rock band or the, the country band? It was so first a country band uh, called Jack Diamond with a, a local musician uh, here in Toronto, Ted Hawkins, mm-hmm. was the leader of that band. And we played top 40 country of the time, the late 80s. And then it, I played with a, a classic rock band called Total Stranger that did things like Pink Floyd and um, oh, what else, like uh, Steve Miller Band and things like that. So was this one after another or together yeah. at the same time? One after the okay. other. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, you could only be with one band, right? right. Because okay. it was That's a full-time, right. everyday and so, you know, the pay wasn't that great. And um, some of the guys on, that I was on the road with were, you know, in their 40s. And I was 18, 19. And I thought, maybe I don't want to do this forever. I met some lifers on the road, mm-hmm. you know, who, just players who played all their life. And, and, it's, and it's very sort of a level thing. Like, so I didn't want... That so I thought I should go to school and so my, like this would be after the three years or two and a half years yeah, or whatever yeah so uh, I thought I'll go to school so and really learn something about music and I was always interested in uh, I always you know I had guitar lessons and things like that from the age of thirteen and so I learned how to read music and I had a grounding in it and I loved to read about music so I was always reading Rolling Stone or Book hist- I loved histories of rock and roll and, and learning the background, reading the backs of albums, trying to figure out, you know, publishing credits and, and you know, player credits and just trying to figure out the whole stuff. Right. I was really interested in, I remember I, there was no book on Steely Dan and I thought, I want to write a Steely Dan book, but I know, had no idea how to get there. Right. And so, but I also realized I needed to become a better player and singer if I didn't want to be on the Six Nighter circuit it ended up that circuit died out anyway right 
Uh, did you know when it died out? Like, was it quite obvious when it died No, out? it just kind of petered out in the 90s. Over the course of the 90s, like, you know, just it slowly uh, went away. And so now there is, you can't really stitch together a kind of on the road. That apprenticeship for young musicians is gone. It's, it's, a, it's a topic that's come up a number of times with yeah. in, in this podcast, the, the number of musicians who, who feel that they learn the most in that period where they could actually play six days a week. Yeah, that's where I really learned how to play and sing was, was on the road. But I wanted to, um, I'd always been curious about jazz and it was kind of mysterious to me. So I thought I'll go to school and... Um, my parents were very supportive of that. They didn't care what I did as long as I got a degree. Did, did you get that credit? Did you need to get that one credit? Yeah, I had to go back and get that one credit. So I went to summer school right. uh, in Hamilton. And uh, I got that one credit. And then I started at Mohawk College in 89, doing a three-year diploma in what they called applied music. And so this was... it. It was a kind of a professional degree or diploma, but in, you know, the basics of music, first of all, and a little bit of music history and a little bit of analysis and counterpoint harmony. Uh, but it was heavy on jazz. So I had a guitar lesson and I had a vocal, I was a double major in voice and guitar. And so I had a guitar lesson and a, vo- a voice lesson every week for three years. And, um, uh, big band arranging and ensembles and it was great great I learned so much about music like you know we did things like ear training where you you had to learn how to sight sing a piece of music without an instrument you know you had to be able to look at music and sing what's on the paper and just hear the intervals and and that was unbelievably um valuable for me because I use that all the time learning music writing down music saves me so much time in memorization that I'm able to transcribe music because I don't have a very good memory for specific like uh, licks and things like that. Good memory for lyrics, but not for figures. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like I couldn't. Yeah. So anyway. That's interesting. Um, I, I wonder. Okay. So. So it was a great skill building. But I'm thinking right. you're thinking you're out on the road and thinking, okay, there's I don't really want to be doing bars six nights a week for the rest of my life. Then you think. I want to learn jazz. <laughs> so is, was there a, um, a brighter path if you went the jazz route? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I had no illusions about um, it helping me in any way other than making me a better musician. Okay. I had no illusions that I was going to be a jazz musician. Oh, okay. Um, because I, I was, well... Look, when I was there, I delved into it as much as I could, but I, I wasn't as heavy into it as some of the other people there right. who for whom jazz was their life. And it wasn't like there were huge jazz... I mean, I know that there's iconic jazz musicians, but it, there isn't a huge jazz scene and probably wasn't back then. No, 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 no. But I did play jazz right. out, you know, from the, and it's been a part of my my mix of music ever since I still play jazz today. Um, but just, it's one of many different styles of music I've ended up playing. So as a country artist, country musician, and also as a classic rock musician, and then converting to jazz, how's that, how difficult was it to go to, 
to jazz and, and to be comfortable in that genre? Oh man, it's I mean it's it's kind of the hardest thing in the world. I'm still I'm st- I'm still just getting to grips with <laughs> anything about jazz, right. you know? Um especially the more modern uh strains and by modern I mean like after the 1940s. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, the yeah. mod, yeah. like bebop. I'm not a, I'm not a bebop. I'm most comfortable in the more like tonal inside jazz swing era, 1920s, especially. Right. So that would come in handy for me later because there, that ended up being the kind of jazz that I mostly play right. for the last 10, 15 years. Okay. So you go to school for jazz and what are you thinking? I'm going to be a better player, but I'm not going to be a jazz musician. Right. And I'm just thinking, I want to learn this stuff. Like, I want to learn how to write a fugue. I want to, I want to learn how to harmonize a melody in four parts and make it sound right. You know, I got into the, into the uh, challenge of it. And so I kind of fell in love with learning at that point. And what happened was I was a terrible student in high school skipped all the time, had terrible marks, failed many classes. I mean, it was just, it was, it was awful. And Do you know why? Because it's just because you weren't interested? I think just because I was a teenager and I was being a teenager and I, I was just being a stupid kid. Mm. And I was, you know, just being lazy about it and I wasn't motivated for whatever reason at the time. And, but as soon as I got to Mohawk, it was straight A's. Like, I was... I was I worked so hard and I was good at it, you know. So, did you have a mental block about going back to school in any way? No. Okay. No. Not not at all. I got into it right away and so at least academically I was I was pretty good there and I got scholarships and stuff. So that was nice. Mm-hmm. And then it came to the end of that 3 years and so what do you do next? Well, McMaster University in Hamilton had a sweet uh, credit transfer program at that time. I don't know if they still do, but I was able to transfer. So from my three-year diploma at Mohawk, so it's 92 now, I was able to go to McMaster and enter in third year. In what program? In uh, music, history, and theory. So I decided, I had thought for a while that I might be a composer, but uh, it turned out that what I was most interested in was music history and theory. So I I really liked, so McMaster was great, so I got my grounding in classical music history. Uh, So when you say classical music history, this is the study of classical music and its history as opposed to playing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I had had a performance... um, I had a lesson as well at McMaster, but it was not, it was just a small part. Mostly what I was doing there was writing essays and analyzing music. So classical music. Right. And how did you find that? Because now you're going from jazz to classical. I loved it because it's another hugely deep well, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I got into, I mean, one of the things was that they had this incredible library where you could go and take out records and listen to them in the library. And so I started checking out, well, what's this? What's Benjamin Britten? What's Leonard Bernstein? What's, uh, and then I really got into 
um, modern classical music like um, Stravinsky and uh, Schoenberg and, uh, you know, a lot of 20th century John Cage. And I was just, there was so much amazing stuff that was really opening my ears. So that really gave me a taste for this modernist avant-garde Did you have to go through the history? Did you have to appreciate the Beethovens and the Bachs and whatever before you got into the modern stuff or... No, I got into it right away because I, because of how I did my degree at McMaster, it was all very, everything was happening at the same time. So I was doing, I was learning about Gregorian chant at the same time that I was learning about Chopin at the same time that I was learning about uh, Bartok. So it was all just a sandwich for me and there was no sequential. And, you know, to be honest, this, this weird uh, 20th century classical music was just as foreign to me as Beethoven. Right. Because I didn't grow up with classical music at all. I mean, I was familiar, but I really, it was all new to me, really. And you just connected with it. I totally connected with it. And so um, when I was at McMaster, I had a professor who was uh, kind of a young professor, and she was a medievalist. And so she had come as a medievalist, but she was, and you know, what I used to do is I'd go, to all my professors, I would just haunt these people. And, and I'd, you know, they'd have their office hours, so they'd have the door open and I'd just like, hey, you know, and I'd sit down and I'd just gab with them because I was just hungry for whatever, I just wanted the good stuff, the knowledge, right? Although and, I, when I went to university, it was people used to say, you should do that because one, the the professor would would know you, yeah, know yeah. you, and also that never your interest. It never occurred to me that it could be good for grade grubbing. Right. I just really wanted to know, so I'd sit, I'd ask them, "What are you working on?" Which I think they were completely shocked. I just think now, if a student came up to me and said, "What are you researching? Like, what's your pet project?" Because because right. th- that's the thing, they're teaching the course to you, but they're always working on something else themselves. Right. That's often really cool. So. One of the one of the uh, professors there, uh, Paul Rappaport, he was working on microtonality, and he, that was his thing. And so I did a directed reading course with him, and I learned all about just intonation, which is a whole arcane end of uh, just the whole thing of tuning and temperament. You know, this area I got into it very mathematical, a little too mathy for me. <laughs> And But this other professor, Susan Fast, the medievalist, she was writing a paper on Led Zeppelin. And it was a scholarly paper with like footnotes and stuff <laughs> on Led Zeppelin. And I, w- I was like, you can do that? It, never, it had never occurred to me that you could study in an academic way, the way that we studied routinely Beethoven, Mozart, and Strauss and all all these guys, that you could do it about rock music. And then, so she was writing this thing on Led Zeppelin, and she told me about this book called Running with the Devil, which is this incredible book that had just been published about heavy metal. And it was like a sociological and musicological in the sense that it looked at the sociology of heavy metal, but it also connected it with the sounds. And so the guy would have transcriptions of, of like, Eddie Van Halen guitar solos, and he would show how what Eddie Van Halen played, uh, you know, affirmed the cultural values of or subcultural values of heavy metal. 
And it just blew my mind. And I, I said, well, that's what I want to do. I want to study that. And again, I'm not thinking of a job. Right. I never was, I was never practically thinking of anything. I was just thinking, give me that. Like that looks really interesting. But thinking of that. So if you could study it, then you would also teach it. Maybe I wasn't thinking that. Oh, okay. I mean, I knew vaguely that if I studied it and I went far enough, I wasn't thinking PhD at that point. I was just thinking maybe I would teach it, but I honestly was not thinking that way. And I think it, it's, it's strange to me now that it, like, you know, I didn't have any money. Like I wasn't, <laughs> it's not like, uh, you know, there was a trust fund waiting for me, really? uh, you know, but I just really never thought that way. I just was totally idealistically chasing the, the information and the knowledge I wanted to be, I wanted to be smart about this stuff. I want to be able to talk intelligently about it. I wanted to know about it. I was curious about it. And it was, you know, I had, when I went to university, I had this, this fantasy idea of that. It was this, you know, these hallowed halls of knowledge. And when I saw how many of my, of my contemporaries really didn't care about the whole thing and just wanted to get a degree so they could get a good job and buy a big screen TV. I was kind of disgusted by that because to me it was like this holy thing, you know, that you're, you're at the, you're at the hall of knowledge, like have some respect, (laughs) you know? And how much playing are you doing at this point? Doing quite a lot. So I was during this time, I was still in bands. So I was actually during this period of time, I was actually in a band that had a record deal. And we were playing a lot. What kind of music? Uh, it was an original kind of quirky pop band with some humor in it. Kind of in that 90s, Bare Naked Ladies, yeah, yeah. Moxie Fruvis kind of way. And in fact, it's, it's funny, you know, in 1991, right in the middle of all of this, we went, this band was called Nine Big Dogs. We had a, a small mini hit on CFNY called Dougie's Lament that was getting, that, that was our big thing okay so when you sorry just to interrupt but when you're going through that and you you, you're getting radio airplay and there's some recognition from a a a major a pretty major radio station are you thinking what are you thinking as a as a musician are you thinking this is a route you could go at at one point i thought that i might uh quit school and again i'm just kidding (laughs) yeah yeah no i at one point i thought like around second year at Mohawk, I thought that it might get to a point where we might go on the road or something and I'd have to quit school. Um, uh, but it never got to that point. So it wasn't really a decision I had to make. But when it didn't get to that point, how did you feel? Were you disappointed? Did you have any views about the record industry and and the career? Um, yeah, well, it... The whole experience made me very much mistrust the business. Right. And so, yeah, it kind of put it, it uh, put the idea out of my mind that this, this was something maybe that I wanted to devote my life to as far as trying to do that, trying to be an artist and full time trying to make it work, you know, like trying to promote this one thing and and you know make albums and stuff that you're still not sure that you're going to be a teacher or no I still had no plan (laughs) okay so we did that in 91 by 92 it was kind of over band broke up 
Right. And I was in university by then anyway. I got into another band, actually, that got a record deal as well, but I quit the band before they got the record deal because they were already going on the road and I didn't want to quit school. That was a band called The Killjoys, oh, which was okay. uh, 90s. Yeah, yeah, they did quite well. Yeah, they did quite well. So uh, Any regrets? Um, not in the end, but for a little while there, I felt a little like I, I missed out on some fun. <laughs> you probably did. Yeah, I'm sure I did. Yeah. But in the end, I was really glad that I stayed on the path I did because it, it turned out to be much better for me to have stayed in school than to have gone on the road with a rock band for two, three years. But this led you to just keep going to school, learning more, and then going after a PhD. Right. So after um, McMaster, I thought I'm going to go to grad school and get a master's. And so I heard uh, that there was a pretty good, I wanted to do popular music, rock music. I wanted to study rock music. I had an idea. I wanted to do a study of harmony in Neil Young's music. So I, (laughs) I had, you know, I thought his harmony was really interesting, his chords. And so I wanted to do a analytical large scale study. That was my idea, original idea for my master's. Right. So I heard about this guy, Rob Bowman, who was at York University. And so he's a professor there, still is. And uh, I met with him and we just hit it off. And, and uh, I decided to go there. I had great marks. So I had kind of my pick of where I wanted to go, which was nice. So I just decided to go to York. And because that was the strongest pop music department, because mostly because of him. Yeah. And, but, and his name has come up many times. Oh, he's a well-respected person. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a force of nature, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. So I uh, started there, and I um, was taking all these amazing courses on ethnomusicology and, and uh, jazz, and, and it was fantastic. I, f- I felt like I was finally getting something to really chew on, you know? And, and now, do you know what you're doing? Or are you still just sucking it all in and thinking, I have no plan? No, I still have no plan. <laughs> okay. But, so I did that, and my thesis ended up being not on Neil Young, but Bob Dylan. So I did a, uh, my master's thesis was a study on Bob Dylan's vocal style in the early years of his career. So the full title is, One Who, One Who Sings With His Tongue on Fire, colon, Change, Continuity, and Meaning in Bob Dylan's Vocal Style, 1960 to 66. Wow. So that was a whole, uh, I looked at all of his recordings in that period, a six-year period, and I, I analyzed the way that he sang in each period. I, I transcribed many, many songs and um, compared the style in them, created a big database uh, for so that I could... Uh, do data analysis on some of the style change as it went. Uh, took a uh, independent reading in linguistics so that I could understand his singing style in the context of spoken language. So speech patterns or right. speech rhythm and tried to connect that. So I just went to town on it. I mean, I hit it from every angle I could. And 66 because... That was before he went electric? Is that No, he went electric in 65, but 66, he's in a motorcycle crash. Oh, yeah, okay. And he kind of disappears for a couple of years. Right. So it's a nice kind of ending point, because otherwise the project was going to be too big. 
and and when yeah, because he could still be working on it right now. Right. Um, but when he got into electric, did his singing style change drastically? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, when he's trying to get over a band, right. you know, his yeah, singing yeah. style changes. But I thought, I thought mostly his singing style changed with changes in lyric style. So I tried to make that argument that that as his lyric writing changed, his vocal style changed to accommodate different kinds of lyrics for various reasons. Now, I can assume that you would have been a fanatical fan of Bob Dylan. Is that- I, w- I wouldn't say I'm a fanatical, that I was ever a fanatical fan of anybody oh, okay. because I've met truly fanatical fans of Bob Dylan and the Beatles. I mean, I was a big Beatles fan, but there are some true, true nutters out there for the Beatles and for Dylan and, you know, the people who have every scrap of video and audio that the man has ever uttered or, you know, I'm not like I've never. Yeah. Well, I would call like a fanatical fan, somebody who has to have everything. But do they have and and reads everything? Not necessarily. Most fanatical fans are not academics. Because academics don't have time to be fanatical fans. Because we always have to be researching a variety of things right. for our teaching, right? So, or our research or whatever. So, the most fanatical Dylan people are not scholars. They're just collectors and fans. Right. And, that, and they can quote you chapter and verse on which concert he played this song. And, I mean, I'm not that. But you're, you're a fan. I'm a big fan. Right, okay. So... And then when I go to your website, I also see a list of papers or lectures that you do. And, yeah. and I would presume that most of the people you've chosen, like Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, these are people that you're also a fan of. Generally, yeah. Or I become a fan in the so process a, of doing the... So there is a chance that you would pick a top, pick a musician that you, you might not be a big fan of? And how would that happen? Um, well, yeah, I mean... Uh, Often I'll just pick somebody that I don't even know that much about. And maybe, I don't think I'd pick anybody I really dislike. Right. I couldn't do it, yeah, you yeah. know. Uh, but, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pick somebody that maybe I know very little about, but people are curious about. So, I, I, I mean, because I'm a freelance lecturer now, I try to do stuff that has appeal. So, explain what that is. Because I know that you do presentations in different places but how does one become a freelance lecturer and how do you get hired to be that well um part of it is that i ended up doing a phd right so that gives me a credential that gets me in the door at various places that want somebody who's a supposedly an expert so this could be like a night school place or some sort of an educational place or yeah or companies so, so well just to fill in so i after the masters i did a phd right and that took forever and i quit for a while and worked at cbc as a, an associate producer right and then i went back and i finished it and then i was so sick of school and things <laughs> having to do with school that I became just a full-time musician for about six years. And I was on the road in the U.S. and Canada with wow. a, something called Classic Albums Live. Oh, okay. So Classic Albums Live, still going today. Big, big. Big, yeah, yeah, they do Massey Hall and everything. So I was there near the beginning of that. And I did 
kind of only that for about six years. Uh, and um, How did you get into that? It was just an audition you got in? Is that- no, I was working at CBC, and there was an article about it in the paper. And I had ha- had this idea that if I ever was a professor, when I, you know, when I was doing my master's or whatever, my PhD before, so I'm working at CBC, I've done sort of half my PhD, and I always thought if I was a professor, I would love to have a class where we dissected classic rock records and figured out how to reproduce them as a way of understanding them. So I had this idea of like taking Strawberry Fields Forever and having an ensemble of students would like transcribe each part and we would reconstruct it, kind of reverse engineer it and reproduce it. And so when I read about this in the paper, I thought, oh, well, that's what I wanted to do. You know, I thought because because the premise behind it is that it's like strict note for note. And so I like that idea and no costumes. Right. So it's like it's a tribute, but there's no wigs and I can't do wigs. (laughs) So I thought, yeah. And so I I um, emailed the guy and uh, said and I told him about this, that I had always had this idea. And and so I uh, started by bringing a church choir that I was leading at the time to do a stone show, to do the choir for You Can't Always Get What You Want. Right. And so, and then after that, we did the White Album and I was in. So I ended up doing 30 different classic rock albums, note for note, with this organization, touring on and off through U.S. and Canada for six years. Okay, so I'm interested in that, the, the thinking behind that. And yeah. I, I often wonder about tribute bands and I and I guess this is a tribute band but it seems something even larger than just a tribute band but the way you approach that music versus the other bands that you've been in Mm -hmm. is it any different oh totally different in what way well in the other bands I've been well I've been in lots of different kinds of bands but you know a lot of the stuff I do is very improvised Mm -hmm. and very loose and I like loose music you know I love the Grateful Dead and the band and I I love it Uh, but this was this is a totally different task right the task is to nail it and vocally and instrumentally so there's something uh, kind of monastic about it you know you you your task is clear just get it right there's no uncertainty there's no creative choices Right. Other than how am I going to pull this off in the best way? That's that's creativity, actually, because you have to figure out, well, I need to use this guitar and this pedal and I need to play it this way. And how did they how did he play it again? Did he bend that note or did he slide it like there's all of that sort of stuff? So it, it has that, um, you know, there's something uh, hermeneutic about it, right? Like where you're 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 exploring it and you are revealing it. Right. right? And you have to unveil the mystery of of how to play the guitar solo in Pink Floyd's Money and make it sound exactly right. Like, not just close, but exactly right. So I got into that obsessive thing. Is that, as a a musician, is that a good discipline to have, is to try to replicate to that exactly? It's not for everybody. You have to have that cast of mind. And some people I saw who, who tried it, really didn't like it they didn't like that type of thing right but i 
whatever, there's a place in my heart for that kind of (laughs) music making, right? Just like all the, it, it's all part of the whole thing. So I wonder as a musician, when you play with Alec or when you play with Jeff, you look out in the audience and the audience comes to see you a certain way versus classic rocks live where, right. How do you view the audience for that kind of show Mm. versus? Well, that's interesting because you, in that, in the note for note thing, you are kind of invisible. You're just there as a conduit for the memories of the people in the audience. You're not, um, but you're valued for your um, fidelity to the original and, you know, respected for your ability to pull it off. So there is some of that. It's a little bit like being a classical musician, I think, too. That's true. Except that classical musicians get more latitude for interpretation than this. This was, there's no latitude. Not if you're doing it right. Yeah. There's no latitude. Oh, I do it this way. No, you don't. (laughs) No. Okay, so. So there's something nice about that certainty, right? Yeah. So I I music directed for the Beatles uh, show there. So, because that was, the Beatles is my biggest thing ever, right? So I have that music really in my head, all their music. I know and very, very well. And this is because you grew up with it? Or does, yeah. did you wind up getting more appreciation for the Beatles as you got older? No, no. I That was what got me into music seriously was the Beatles when I was 12. Right. So I f- fell hugely in love with the Beatles when I was like 11 or 12. What was it, What was the album that, that drew you in? You know, it was, uh, it was just, I mean, in those days... The music that you heard was the music that you had. Right. And if you didn't have it, you didn't hear it. So what did you have? So I had very little at first. You know, like I just sort of got interested in them, but I didn't have an album. And so I didn't have any money. So I had to wait. And eventually I got the Blue album, you know, the greatest hits, 67 to 70. And that was a start. And then I got Revolver. And then I got, you know, I don't know what I got after that. Abbey Road, Sergeant Pepper, Let It Be. Like it was just filling in here and there. I never actually got all the albums at that time. It was only later that I got the rest of it. But no, it was just, um, I don't know. It, it just kind of hit me one day and I, I, and I became totally obsessed with the Beatles. I wouldn't listen to anything else when I was 11, 12. Wow, I I was just a beetle, and I everything I could get my hands on to read, uh, and there wasn't much available at that time until John Lennon died, right? Because I got into the Beatles in like seventy nine, eighty, and then John Lennon dies end of eighty, and it's the floodgates, and so I mean it was awful that that happened, mm-hmm. but on the plus side, every book that had ever been written about John Lennon or the Beatles was re released in 1981. So if you were a knowledge hound like I was, it was unbelievable. It was just whatever I could afford. Right. Right. So I just bought everything I could afford. I was spending any, you know, lawn mowing money I made <laughs> on beetle, beetle crap, you know, because okay. I, I was just feeding this monster of curiosity about, about the band. And is that, is that, um, curiosity still there today? Yeah. And yeah. are you still finding new things? Yeah. 
right. all the time. Just even about the Beatles. Yeah, man. The the um, you know a couple of years ago, I read Mark Lewison's newish Beatles biography, which only goes up to 1962, and it's like 800 pages, called Tune In, right. and it's unbelievable. It's it's mind blowing. It's, I'm learning so, I learned so much new from that and had so many myths busted and it's fantastic. So you're, you're now doing the classic rock thing. You said you was tired of school, but you, you always meant to go back to school. Or was that in question? Uh, no, no, I fit, I, before, well, let me think. Or was it between the master's and the PhD? No, because I went straight from my master's into my PhD and then in 2002, I started, I quit my PhD, dropped out, started at CBC, 2005, laid off from CBC, went back to school. But by then I had already started playing with Classic Albums Live. So it overlapped, doing my PhD overlap, but I was done all my coursework. So I was just working on my dissertation at that time. So right. I could do that while playing in this thing. And they weren't that busy at that time anyway. They're much busier now. They've got a whole circuit. Right. But it was a fledgling thing. When I, and most you could of the actually time make a living was, doing this? Or was it eh, nice money every so often? Yeah, it wasn't enough to live really. So it was tough. Right. Because okay. I, I kind of needed to do that full time, but I wasn't making enough money. I, and around that time, I also began playing with Jeff Healy. Okay, so how did that happen? So you were one of the guitarists for Jeff Healy's Jazz Wizards. Yes. That's when I first saw you. So how did that connection happen? Okay, so uh, this goes back to when I was in the first year of my master's degree. Um, now, I, I'm a child of the 80s, so I grew up watching much music mm -hmm. and watching Jeff Healy videos. Right. See the light and, yeah. and uh, you know... Roadhouse Blues and everything, Angel Eyes. And so I was, you know, a fan, right? I'm a guitar player too. So come on, he's ridiculous <laughs> and he's blind. And it's, and it was, you know, it was, but, um, so I didn't know him or anything. I'd never met him, but I was, so I was in my master's degree and I was taking a course in jazz and we had to write a major essay. And so, uh, I, decided to do something on early jazz guitar. And so I decided to write an essay on a 20s jazz guitarist named Eddie Lang. Eddie Lang was an acoustic guitarist, but he's considered to be, and he died in 1933, but he's considered to be the pioneer jazz guitarist, like really before anybody else. He was the, he was the guy. Wow. And he kind of developed a lot of the vocabulary that people built on in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And now you've got this incredible jazz guitar uh, history, right? With everyone from Joe Pass to Wes Montgomery to Herb Ellis. Well, it all starts with Eddie Lang. Mm. And so somebody suggested to me that I should get in touch with Jeff Healy because he's he collects these records. And the thing about 1920s music is that especially at that time, which was mid-90s, there a limited amount of those 78s right. that came out in the 20s had been reissued on LP and were even available to hear. So I wanted to be able to listen to a lot of Eddie Lang because I wanted to write about his style and I wanted to be authoritative, right? So I needed access to Eddie Lang 
records or even just records that that I needed to know what what records he played on because he was a studio guitarist as well. So I called Jeff's. I found out what Jeff's management company was, and I think it was Forte at that time. Um, and so I called, and the the uh, woman who answered said, "Well, Jeff's on." T- I said, "I'm doing a essay on Eddie Lang. I was wondering if I could talk to Jeff." And she said, "Well, Jeff is on tour, so he'll you know he might call you in a couple of weeks when he gets back." Okay, okay. So I left my office number there at that at. The, York and five minutes later the phone rings and it's Jeff and he says I hear you're writing about Eddie Lang and I say yes well congratulations when can you come over so I spent two full days so he wasn't on tour he I don't know what he was doing (laughs) okay yeah I don't know I think it was probably just the standard brush off right um but so I don't know I I went a few days later to his apartment on the, at the Grange. And Mm. I spent two full days there and he taped me two 90 minute cassettes full of Eddie Lang 78s. It was just the two of us there. And that was when, where I saw, I was vaguely aware that he collected old records, but that's where I saw. And anybody who spent time with Jeff with his records saw this side of him that he was an unbelievable encyclopedia of knowledge mm-hmm. about that era and about those records, that he was one of the most respected collectors in the world of, of 1920s jazz um, and uh, dance band records, which is, a diff- which is a subset of 20s records that are less known. Right. Everybody knows 20s jazz, Louis Armstrong and so on. Not so many people know these millions of other records that were just dance bands playing these stock arrangements. And Jeff was an expert on those too. So, and you know, he would... Sorry, how did he get his expertise other than being a collector and being somebody who who would know that music, but... How did did, he get his expertise? Yeah, like how did he study that music? Was it just from talking to people? He, well, first of all, he had been collecting since he was in his early teens. Right. And he... Uh, he listened obsessively to those records. When I went over, he had a big white couch and I was sitting on a chair and he was sitting on the couch and, and he had his hand on the armrest. And as he would listen, he would have a cigarette in one hand and he'd, on with his other hand, he'd be tapping on the arm of the chair. Well, that arm was black <laughs> from his hand, tapping it, Day after day, year after year, because all Jeff did all day long was listen to 78s, one after the other. And he would, um, he had a Braille typewriter and he would type out information when he could get somebody to read him information from the discography books. So his, he knew his discography books, and these are like thousand page books that list every record, but that each artists made and the date and the personnel. And Jeff could tell you, you know, he'd say, oh, you really need to hear um, uh, uh, Goldcat doing um, I'd Rather Be the Girl in Your Arms than the Girl in Your Dreams. Okay, so he'd go up to, first of all, he'd get up and he'd go to the record shelf and this blind guy would find the record. He would just pull it out and he'd, he'd feel the in, inner groove to feel the matrix number and the label. And he'd say, is this it? It it always was. 
So the guy knew where every record, and he had 30,000 records, don't forget. And he, not only that, but he would tell you, oh, this was recorded in August 27, and uh, the bass players, he knew the personnel, he knew the label, he he could tell you within a, a, you know, a number of 50 or a hundred, what the catalog number was quite often. Like it was ridiculous. The guy, <laughs> see, the thing about Jeff was that he had a photographic memory mm-hmm. for things. And that's part of why he was a good musician. I also never saw him practice or pick up a guitar except on stage. <laughs> he never touched it. There wasn't even one in the house. Really? No, I never saw a guitar in the house. He kept them in the garage, in the cold garage. Okay. So, so anyway, he, he was, when he went to blind school, they taught him how to organize things in his head because you have to be able to remember and, right, right. and slot all the information. And in. so he was like a computer and he applied that skill to his knowledge of records, which was, which was ridiculous. Like his, his instant recall, I can't imagine another person having recall like that blind or sighted. So those two days that you spent with him. Yeah. Those first two days, was, was it just like mind-boggling? And yes. Were, were you, did you learn like a ridiculous amount of things, way more than maybe you would have thought? Oh, yeah. And I interviewed him about Eddie Lang, and and we had a nice long talk. And, and uh, you know, he helped me tremendously with my essay. Right. <laughs> and then um, I did my essay, and, and uh, you know, I sent him a copy and and thanked him, and that was it. And I didn't see him for a couple years after that and then I was playing as part of North by Northeast and he came in I don't think he knew I was there right but uh, we got him up to so do a who song are you playing with I was just playing with my own little band okay. there and we got him up and we did I played bass for him and we did Angel Eyes and we reconnected at that time and we hung out a little bit and then I didn't see him again for a few years after that and then I moved to Toronto from Hamilton in 2003 and not long after that, I started to play with a band called the Hogtown Syncopators, uh, not around 2004, 2005, which was a band playing 20s jazz. Yeah. And the, the singer in that band, uh, Tara Hazelton, was in the Jazz Wizards. She sang with the Jazz Wizards. And so I reconnected with Jeff at that time. And um, I sat in with the Wizards at the club and he began to call me as the first call sub for the Jazz Wizards. And then soon after that, I began to uh, sub in with the blues band as well, playing second guitar, because I could, you know, I can hang with, with a blues band or a, or a 20s jazz band. And so he called me for both. So what's it like to play guitar in Jeff's band? Because <laughs> it must be... I mean, I know what a giving person he is. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, when I saw the Jazz Wizards, he was definitely that. And he was just part of a band. Exactly. Um, even with his blues band, it was the same deal. But he is one of the great guitarists of our time. Yeah. And he plays totally different from everybody else. And I don't know how intimidating that would be to anybody. Like, <laughs> Well, it, it couldn't not be intimidating, but he did so much to diffuse that. He was always throwing me solos. Mm-hmm. He always shared the spotlight in the in both of the bands. It was ridiculous. One time we were playing some big outdoor festival for thousands of people and I'm I'm Joe Nobody on second guitar 
And he says, why don't you sing Roadhouse Blues? <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> They'll kill me. But he used to do that, right? He, he would thought- do that because he, he didn't care. He didn't care. Like he, all of that, that's the thing about, that was amazing about Jeff was that he was kind of totally unaffected by it all. It didn't, it didn't mean anything to him. He'd, he'd much rather be playing his records. That's right. all, that's really what, that's what Jeff loved. He loved his records, you know? Yeah. He, it wasn't, it wasn't being a rock star or whatever. That was just, that was, that was really kind of meaningless to him. And so he shared it. It didn't mean anything to him. You know, it was his work. Right. And that's, you know, that's what most people wanted to see. Yeah. And he also had a certain level that the, the musicians he played with were of a certain stature. Or of of course. Yeah. Stature. I mean, he was picky about musicians yeah. for sure. And I think the Jazz Wizards was more, what was closer to, I mean, it was closer to the music that he loved Mm because 1920s jazz was what Jeff loved the most, you know, not rock blues. Right. But even doing that, I'm sure that it must have been, it it probably raised a few eyebrows when he said, I'm going to not do my rock thing. I'm going to do this traditional jazz band. Yeah. And, And what a great band that was. It was. It was, you know, I, I. Got to play with them a few times because um, I'm sort of showing up close to the end of Jeff's life, right? right. I mean, he's gone by 2008. So um, I just kind of uh, entered his orbit um, in the last, you know, four or five years of his life. Right. I got to work with him a lot on his records, actually. When he was getting sicker, he wanted to... Uh, he was digitizing his collection. So he was painstakingly recording every one of his 78s to, to CD, and he needed somebody to catalog them in his computer. Right. So that's what I would, he hired me, and I would come over all day, and we'd, we'd sit there and listen to records, and we'd go through the discography and, and uh, tag, we had to tag all these MP3s that he recorded. Wow. Yeah. So that those ended up after after he died there a huge collection was um you know it's now in the co- collectors community. Mm-hmm. You know because there are some serious collectors of this music. Yeah. And so those digital copies cuz uh, you know a lot of the records Jeff had are, were there there were only one copy. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. Cuz Jeff would that's the other thing is Jeff would he buy records from these from these auctions, these mail order auctions, and he'd be bidding like 200 bucks, 300 bucks, 500 bucks for a record. He, he had to have that record. <laughs> he was obsessed. He was obsessed. He was like some collectors are right? Right, right. And he traveled the world as a, as a famous musician. So everywhere he went, he'd hit the record store, but he, it had to be the 78 right. store. These often these junk shops and he'd go through them. And the thing is I went with them to, you know, one time on the way to a gig in Stratford, I, he'd always get me to drive for him. So we'd rent a car and I didn't have a car that time. And we'd rent a car and we stopped at, at some storage facility because somebody was selling 3,078s. And they, you know, so he was thinking about buying the collection. So we went and I have pictures of this actually. <laughs> Uh, and he'd go and he'd like flip through the records and, and he didn't need me to read him the label. Like he knew what it was. He'd know what label it is. He'd know, you know, how old it is. And he would, he could get a sense of the, 
age of the collection, whether he wanted it. That's amazing. So he didn't want certain things, yeah, right? Yeah. He didn't want any 78. He wanted the things he needed. And if, the, and if he thought that there was potential in a collection, he would buy the whole collection. And then he'd just give the cast-offs to, to us, like me and <laughs> other people who were sort of beginner collectors. Right. So that's how I got my collection. I have a small collection. You know, wow. maybe 600 records, like a, just a pittance right? Com- compared <laughs> to him. 000, yeah. But that I got my records from him because they were just his cast offs that he already had two copies of. So he didn't need to keep. Did you did, did he manage to digitize everything? No. Oh. In amongst this joining with Jeff and, and you also pursued um, teaching. Or doing lectures, I guess. Yeah, so after... So I left Classic Albums Live in 2009. And uh, I'd just gotten married again in 2008. And so um, living in Toronto, I started... After I quit Classic Albums Live, I I sort of dove into uh, doing solo gigs in pubs. Because it was... I needed to make money. And what kind of music are we talking about? Uh, generally, like uh, pub music. So like classic rock and folk and, you know, James Taylor songs. Right. And so I know a lot of songs, right, from over the years. Yes. I've picked up a lot of repertoire. So and I know you also do a gig, just as a side with, with Alec Fraser, that you just have people call in or call out songs and you do it. Yeah, we actually have envelopes. At that gig. So people can f- take an envelope and they fill out th- up to three songs. And if they want, they can put money in the envelope. <laughs> and, and they often do. Okay, so how often do they stump you? Not that often. Because the other thing, too, is that even if I don't know the words, I can often fake it <laughs> if I have the words. So I have my phone right, on, right. on a little tray on the mic stand. And so I'm able to quickly Google the lyrics and I put put the lyrics there, and I so I I can get through, you know, if somebody wants record the Edmund Fitzgerald or whatever, I'll do that because there's no way I'm I'm gonna learn those words, right? So, but you know, like a ridiculous amount of songs to be able to do this. Yeah, well, because I've played in a million cover bands over the years, and I don't know, I just sort of picked them up along the way. That's impressive. So I did that, like I did pubs like right. crazy, and I had a friend who is a really great solo pub singer who went to New Zealand for six months. And so I kind of took over some of his gigs. The timing was perfect. And so I took over some of his gigs and rented his PA. And and so that got me um, making money right away. And so that that's what I needed to do. And then I sort of, for a year, about a year, I was sort of was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I, I, I was exploring some different areas. I was thinking like, Oh, could I try to do liner notes? Could I do, should I do a blog? Like I was sort of trying to figure it out. And then, um, I, I had back a couple years before I had gotten a call from a, a friend at York, who's a professor, like a, At that time, he was a freelance professor and a pop music guy, great guy, Matt Vanderwood. And he had been contracted to teach a course on jazz at at the Glendon campus of York. 
for an organization called Living and Learning in Retirement. And what this is, is it's an organization that uh, uses donated classroom space from the university, and they offer non-credit, low-cost, general interest courses to retired people. So people, I think 55 and over, but retirees. And so if you're retired and you want to keep learning and you've got time to learn, you can sign up with this organization and they offer courses on uh, the history of Russia, um, you know, a social history of Toronto, ballet, hmm. opera, jazz. And so my friend Matt had been contracted to teach this course, 12 week course, non credit, on the history of jazz. And he had gotten hired at York full time and he couldn't do it. So he asked if I'd want to do it. And I said, sure. And actually, that I know it was a few years before because I actually had Jeff Healy come in and do a substitute lecture for me when I had to go on the road with classic albums for a week. You know, I had to miss a class. And they loved him and he charmed the pants off everybody. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, You seem to have this pattern that these opportunities have opened up for you, whether it be mm -hmm. in lecturing that led to other lectures or or in, in bands and it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, just things come along, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I jump on everything, right? Right. If it looks interesting, I'll and I'll figure out how to do it later. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, I mean, I'd done some teaching because when I was working on my master's and my PhD, I had begun to to make extra money. I was uh, teaching as a contract professor at Guelph, you know, University of Guelph, University of Waterloo. McMaster, I did a big pop music course there. So I, I had had some uh, classes under my belt teaching right. undergrad courses as a contract professor. Did you enjoy that? Uh, yeah, question? yeah, I did. It was a lot of work, right? tremendous amount of work. But yeah, I, I liked it, especially when it was something that... The problem with that is that I sort of had to do whatever they were offering. Right. So I, had, I remember one year I taught a course on Baroque music. At Guelph, and I really didn't know enough to teach a course on Baroque music. Right. You know, I it, it had been, it had been like half a semester at McMaster. That's all I knew about Baroque music history. So I don't like, um, I don't like going by the seat of my pants that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I did things like, uh, cl- you know, classical music appreciation for non-music majors. I did a lot of that, or I did ear training, which I loved doing. Uh, teaching musicians how to hear, right? right. Uh, and I did pop music. I did jazz, history of jazz. So I had some stuff in my pocket for that. So I did this course. I loved teaching retired people. They were really happy to be there, mm-hmm. really interested, polite, educated themselves, right. had great questions. Um, you know, they paid attention. You know, it was all the it was all the things that, you know, when you're teaching nineteen year olds, there are all kinds of issues, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Especially now with phones. Right. It's God, I wouldn't want to be. I mean, I occasionally do teach undergrads now, but it's really preferable teaching retirees. Also, I don't like marks. I don't like grades. Right. I like teaching a non credit course because it it has that purity I was telling you about. You know, right. my ideal, my idealized castle of knowledge, right? <laughs> I can now live in that. 
the other thing that you do, and I guess it's kind of related, is I, I you t- you take like tours to different locations. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the same kind of thing, but I presume it's related. Yeah. So you you go to Liverpool and do like a Beatles talk, or you yeah. go to Chicago and right. do blues. Is that right. correct? Yeah. Right. So tell me about how that's. It comes out of doing the stuff with the retirees. So, um, starting around 2009, 2010, I started. I prioritized doing that kind of teaching, and so I was seeking out. Uh, contracts teaching courses to retirees I thought I like doing this I want to do more of this so I went to George Brown and I got on their roster I went to Ryerson I went to U of T uh there's one in Mississauga there's one in Etobicoke so now I do on a rotating basis all those places um and so you know this past term I'm well at the at the moment I'm doing a course on Bob Dylan at Ryerson for the retirees there mm-hmm. doing a course on the Beatles at U of T at Innes College for the retirees there I just finished a course on Leonard Cohen at Hot Docs Theater they have a series it's not it's not just retirees it's anybody but it tends to be right. people because it's a morning class <laughs> it tends to be retired people right, right? Um, and I just had a course on folk music at York just end prematurely because of the strike right so uh, in 2010, uh, my my wife Jill and I had an idea. I had an I have a friend named Rick Phillips who I worked with at CBC, who had a show on CBC called Sound Advice, where he would review classical CDs. Mm-hmm. And so he had a national show, so he's got a he's got a great profile. And he and I would sometimes get together for lunch after we were both out of CBC <laughs> and, you know, just talk about, cause he was teaching retiree co- courses as well. And he was doing these, these trips, uh, where he would bring a group to Vienna and they'd go to classical concerts and he would do pre-concert talks and it, you know, it's a thing, right? He was mm-hmm. a tour guide essentially. So I, I thought, well, somebody should do this for jazz mm-hmm. and go to New York and take people to all the clubs. And so I suggested it to Jill and we, we thought about it and more and more we thought, yeah, we could do this. This could be a little business for us that she, you know, she's super organized. She's an experienced traveler. She's a very together person where I'm all over the place (laughs) and that she would run, run the show and I would be the, as we call it, the talent, right. right? That I would be doing the talks and people know me from, like I have a big email list that I've collected over the years of people who have taken my courses. So anytime we develop one of these things, I send it out to, to my people and it fills up. So what's, we do. What's an ideal size? Yeah, yeah like 20 them. people. So we, you know, we'll do it like we have a cutoff, like a minimum 14. Right. And then we'll take maybe a maximum of 23, 24. We just do maybe two trips a year. But we started in 2011 with New York. So in so we went down first and spent a few days there and tried every restaurant and figured out what hotel we wanted and, and checked out the venues and made sure that we could get a reservation. And, we you know, there's all these things yeah, when you've yeah. got a group 
of 20 people over 55 right. in your charge, you know, you can't just show up and be like, hey, you know. <laughs> any room? Yeah, any room? Oh, well, you know, you got to give people a place to sit and it's got to be comfortable. And it's got to be organized. Yeah. So there's a lot of logistical sure. stuff like that. And so it's, it's you know, since then we've done uh, 14 trips. Wow. We've gone to New York three times. We've gone to New Orleans three times. That's my favorite trip. I'm sure. Uh, good gone, food, good music. Oh, come on. It's, it's every good people. It's yeah. every, it's the place. It's my favorite place on earth. And, uh, we've done Chicago a couple of times. We've done Nashville and Memphis. Just got back from there a few weeks ago, a couple of times. Um, and now we upcoming, we have Liverpool and London, London in the summer Beatles. Yeah. So of have, course, so have you done this? Well, we've done the research trip. Okay. So last summer we went there and I got to do all the stuff. I'd never, I'd been to London, but I'd never been to Liverpool. So it was heaven. I mean, for a Beatles nerd, it's <laughs> come on. You know, I was standing in John Lennon's childhood bedroom. Like it's ridiculous. But the, how the Beatle pilgrimage is, is it, are they open to you coming in to, I mean, whether it be going to stacks or whatever it might be when you go there and say, we're doing this tour, we're going to come back in six months. Yeah. We want to, well, it depends on the place. So most places like, a, you know, a museum or, a, you know, a tourist thing, they can handle groups, no problem. And they know how to do it. And it's you do a contract and it's fine. Right. And we work with a travel agency. Everything goes through the travel agency and so on. But, you know, we've also had difficulty in, say, a place like Chicago. We're going to Chicago. We want to go hear some blues. Not so easy with a group of 20 people and you want to guarantee that they'll be able to sit down. Like I said, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we had a, a really hard time in Chicago getting a, finding a blues bar that would simply let us, please take our money. <laughs> like, just give us some, yeah, yeah. just tell me that you'll give us some chairs. Hey man, you just show up. It'll be cool. You know, no. We can't do it. So And some of those clubs are really small too. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, so you don't know. So, you know, we don't do Chicago anymore because it's too hard to bring people to a venue. They just for whatever reason, Chicago doesn't want to hmm. they want to keep it loosey goosey. <laughs> so let them. Right. You know, it's really a shame because Chicago's fantastic. Yeah. But so it's the other thing. but it, you know that I know that you do, and this is connected, I don't know if it's your church or not, but yeah. you, you do some shows featuring different bands or musicians at the, the Church of the Redeemer on Blue Street, right? That's right. So I, I'm assistant music director at this church, okay. Church of the Redeemer on Blue Street, Avenue Road. So I lead the 930 service on Sundays, and Jill is there too. She's the musician in residence. Right. And uh, I've been doing this for a few years now. And uh, one of the things we do is what we call a rock Eucharist, where we, do, where we do a Sunday night service, but it's all secular rock music of a single artist. But it is a service. It is. But I think somebody told me they played The Who or something. Yeah, yeah, we did The Who. Yeah. We've done Zeppelin. We've done The Who, we've done, we've done James Brown, Prince, we've done Mumford & Sons, Carole King, Joni Mitchell, we've done, I mean, we've been doing this for like eight years, right? So David Bowie, we're doing connected? Tragically Hip on Sunday. 
Wow. I, yeah. But is it connected to the service? Like, yeah. Yeah, I pick songs that fit with the readings. Wow. S- sometimes very obliquely <laughs> and sometimes not so obliquely. But the idea is that, and this is a service that's meant for people who don't normally go to church. Like it's like a, it's like a, the idea is to bring people in just who are, might be curious about it. Right. And so. And does it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's very successful at that. So, you know, we get these people who have never, we've never seen before who are just checking it out and it's a service, but it's very like gentle, right? It's not, nobody's getting in anyone's face. It's, it's, if you want to participate, you can, if not, nobody has any expectations. So it's very, it's very much an entry level sort of thing, right? But um, the idea is that when you hear, say, a Led Zeppelin song performed in its original form, we don't change any lyrics or anything like that, right. that it makes you think about the, um, it makes you think about the song differently to hear it in that context. Because you naturally think, well, what is this doing here? And then you might listen to the lyrics and and make and go there in your mind of of what what sort of spiritual message could be drawn out of these lyrics or of this song. And so it's a way of kind of recontextualizing secular music and a church service. Now, is that an easy thing to put together? So when you say, okay, let's do Tragically Hip this weekend and to go through the catalog and see what might fit, but also fit with the actual service, given that. Right. So, yeah. So I read the readings for the day. And then what I usually do, like with Tragically Hip, I didn't really know. I I knew like 10 songs pretty well. And then the rest of their catalog, which is big, was pretty unknown to me. So what I did was I went, uh, on the internet to a lyric site where they've got every song right. and I, I, I read the lyrics of every song and then if there was one that I thought could fit I would flag it and then I weighed that against how well known it was because I want to use more well known material if possible I don't, I don't want to use all obscure stuff right. so it's that, it's that sort of alchemy like just figuring out what's the What's going to work? What's going to have that balance of recognizability, and if that's a word, and um, appropriateness or relevance to the readings or the message or a general spiritual message, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. that's all you can hope for. And so, and then the other challenge though is working up the music because I I put together I hire a band and and uh, we rehearse it on the day. And so everybody learns. It's a little bit like classic albums live in that way, that everybody I send everybody the songs, and we talk over email about any ambiguities of who's going to play that part or who's going to sing that part, and then we get together on the day, we work it up in about two hours, hour and a half, two hours. We go to dinner and then we come back and play it, and it's wow. a different band every time, because <laughs> I hire people that either. I have played some of that music before or who I think is, are well suited to it. Right. So it's fun, right? Cause you're, you're working up a show very quickly and then it's done and you're on to the next thing. So we just did a Bob Dylan one right. earlier this month 
So that's done. This is out of my mind. <laughs> and, and now it's, tra- it's all tragically hip all the time. And then on Sunday, that'll be done. I'll be thinking about Aretha Franklin because that's the next one. Wow. So it's, you know, it's a lot of work, though. It's I'm fun. Sure. It's fun to do. So the other thing, and this is, this is just mind-boggling, because I don't know you very well, but I, I look at your, your site and I look at your life, and basically, it's basically music. You, you, you do these tours, music-based. You, you run these um, church shows, music-based. You have your, you've done your um, studies and lectures, and it's quite impressive. So the other thing you have is this relationship with Alec Fraser, the Fraser right. Daily Band, yeah. that you've been playing for 10 years, I believe. You 10 years, yeah. And you play a few times a week in various locations. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about that project, how that started and... So that I met Alec, he was playing with Jeff in the blues band. Right. And uh, so I met him when I did a Thursday guest slot at Healy's in the old club right. on Bathurst. And that was when Jeff and I were reconnecting. And so I met him on stage and we did some gigs with Jeff. And then uh, we were playing a New Year's Eve gig <laughs> with Jeff in London one night and I forget what year and we you know went to a party afterwards and we're drinking beers and playing acoustic guitars and we just started like singing country songs together and hit it off like just had a great time uh you know we knew a lot of the same songs and we just had fun like singing Everly Brothers and stuff it's so uh Alec lives in the Roncesvalles neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bar he n- knows there that he's been going to called the Intersteer Tavern, which is, you know, it's kind of a Polish restaurant, neighborhood bar. And, um, you know, like a, a kind of a Roncesvalles institution. And so he got a regular Wednesday night gig there and he asked me to do it with him. So we started doing it, started doing Wednesday nights. And we had one rehearsal before the first gig. And that's of the course. last. Of course, I'm surprised he even had a rehearsal. That's the last time we rehearsed. <laughs> and so we just started doing it. And that was 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago. And we've made three CDs. And we've done some blues festivals. And I guess we're a blues band. We were more before we before we're not as much now we're more like a folky yeah as far as our original material but i don't know that's it's just a thing we do and 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 we've been doing it straight on wednesdays now we do thursdays in burlington at the anchor bar we do uh one sunday a month at castro's in the beaches we do private parties weddings and we work together a lot yeah i'm sure so you know, we've got lots of songs together and, you know, we go way back. So for that kid who decided to quit school and, and leave high school and go play in bars in, in Ontario and then decided, well, maybe this is not it. And then the, the incredible path you've taken yeah. through music and all the different things. Do you have other goals? Like, I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, if you played in front of stadiums or massive crowds with Jeff or in festivals and whatever. Yeah. And then you do these weekly gigs. Is that like, are you at where you want to be or? Yeah. 
pretty much. I mean, I, I don't have any, I don't have any particular aspirations. I'm fine to play in front of people, but I don't crave big crowds or I don't, I don't want to be like famous or anything like that. I'd rather not be actually, (laughs) I, I just want to, I just want to do these things, you know, like do these fun projects. I, I, I love what I'm doing now. I love the mix of what I'm doing. I don't love every minute of everything I do every day. No, but it's it's pretty amazing when you look at the things you do and they're all music-based. Yeah. And yeah. and most of them are things that I presume you love. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean it's all it's all facets of the same thing, right? So um I I love having the uh ability to pursue a curiosity in some way, you know? Or, or just to undertake, I just love learning and yeah. I get to learn all the time. You know, I'm, I'm working on a Joni Mitchell course. That's my next thing. So I've got to have that together by the middle of April. So I'm listening to her catalog. I'm reading a book about her and I have to stand up there and be an expert on Joni Mitchell in a month. <laughs> How long do you give yourself to become an expert or to get to a point where you're teaching a course that you're happy with? It takes a few times of doing the course before I feel really like I've got it down because that's the other thing is that doing a course is is presentation Mm -hmm. so when I teach a course I'm talking and I'm uh, I'm running a PowerPoint presentation essentially but it's keynote which is the Mac one and I'm you know I'm really putting that together carefully so my keynote presentation has a lot of embedded video archival stuff so I really try to dig and find really good video well chosen video I you have to choose the audio like which song off this album is going to represent you know Dylan's work or the Beatles work like I had you know I was talking about the White Album the other day which three songs are you going to pick to represent the White Album (laughs) right it's hard yeah yeah and then I have to you know say something about every song and and so you know lots of pictures and video and music and and so that the tweaking of that is an endless mm-hmm. it's never over for me i mean i've taught the history of popular music probably a hundred times and i'm still tearing it down and starting o- starting over all the time because i i haven't got it right yet you know it's got to be amazing but it's also ever-changing of course. Well, that's the thing. I've got to update it and I have to, you know, I have to keep updating my perspective. So I really keep up on developments, not musical developments as much as business developments in the music business right. and technology. I really keep keep up on technology um, and what's coming and, and, you know, the ways the business is changing because I think that's, um, that's an important part of the story, right? Sure. Is the is the business, mm-hmm. you know, the history of the business. And when you think how much it's changed just in the last five years. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So it's it's so bewild it was so bewildering I felt like I needed to get it together. So I've done a lot of reading on that as well. Plus I teach at a music business college, Harris Institute, on Tuesdays. And, you know, I feel a obligation to not be uh, an old fuddy duddy there, you know? <laughs> Because these kids are like 18, 19, yeah, right. you know. I need, to, I need to know what's actually happening in the business and not be like, well, when you put your CD in the player, you know. <laughs> well, you know, CDs. My grandpa has those. 
Mike, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.